นโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสสะทง But it can also be the case that greed is masquerading as something that's sort of spiritual, and if we're not alert to it, we can be causing ourselves undue discontentment. We may be making all sorts of good effort, keeping our precepts and being kind and all these good things. But we don't have dis- we don't have contentment. We have discontentment, and I'm reminded of. Well, I regularly remember something Ajahn Chah said about this, uh, which is that if you're not caught up in wanting, there's nothing to be afraid of. Mm. Fear is something that presumably all of us have some experience of, and whether it's gross fear and and terror. Or whether it's it's subtle fear and and restlessness, you know, fear we're not practicing the right way, fear we're going to get caught up in something, fear we're going to lose something. There. And uh, remember what Ajahn Jah said about this: that if you're not caught up in desire, not caught up in wanting, there's nothing to be afraid of. So of course, greed is uh, when we're caught up in in desire, when we're caught up in wanting. So I think it's a, a really Helpful thing to spend time considering. Thinking back to the early days when I was uh, living in Thailand, sometimes Ajahn, the various Ajahns, we get together. Ajahn Tiradamo, who's now living back in Thailand. Ajahn V, who is back living in Canada now, and we get together and. We talk about the good old days and what it was like, and and one of the things that um, was obvious is that we, at the time we never thought, we never had this idea that Ajahn Chah was going to become famous. It just wasn't something you thought of. He was pretty unknown in Thailand in those early days, and and certainly we didn't have the idea that that uh, his name was going to be well known all around the world and the in the Buddhist world anyway. And, Kind of go onto YouTube and find all these pictures of Ajahn Chah, and it was not something that we we even dreamt of or considered. And and to some degree, I, well, speaking for myself, we even took him for granted. Just well, you know, this is you know he's okay, but what about the real thing? You know, w e r e s yeah, he was good. There was no doubt about it. But this there's something about being young that means you're always looking for something more, and so. 
even though we, we are living with Ajahn Chah, there was this restlessness there, and often the monks, once they were allowed to, you know, as soon as they, Ajahn Chah would let them, as soon as their five years was up, they'd, they'd be off and looking after other teachers and other teachings and mm, busy having all these spiritual experiences and so on. And Ajahn Chah didn't mind that. It didn't, you know, he didn't kind of scold the monks or anything and shame us or anything. He just, okay, you want to do that, off you go. And so long as you thought you were safe and well-trained as a monk, then let you go off and... You come back, and he would he would smile and say, "Have a good time, and you have some nice experiences." And and you know, sometimes the monks would start going on about, "Oh, yeah, this teacher teaches like that, and that teacher he's got this technique." And Ajahn Chah would just smile and say, "Oh, yeah, so you've got some more things to let go of." <laughs> so he uh, he didn't mind us running around looking for more interesting experiences, but you know, but he also knew, I'm sure he knew. That um, this is partly what, you know, when you're young, this is what happens. You know, young people are uh, greedy, basically. Children are greedy. See, the way you know, children behave, if, if uh, mum and dad don't do their job properly, well, children are just kind of anything that comes along, they put it in their mouth and they're going to, any amount of sugar they can get, they stuff it in and dirt, they stuff dirt in their mouth and little ants, frogs, whatever, <laughs> they don't have discernment. Children don't have discernment, do they? So they've got to be taught. And something looks beautiful, all those pretty flames, go and stick their hand in the pretty flames and you get burnt. Ouch. That's a, you know. So mum and dad are there to teach children discernment. Say, well, just because something looks interesting, looks good, just because you see your friend the other side of the road doesn't mean to say you should run over to see your friend. You know, there might be a great big car coming along that's going to go whack and... You've got to be patient. You've got to be careful in life. And so this is what mummy and daddy do with children, hopefully. And so most of us probably get a reasonable sense of how, um, you know, being, being grossly greedy is going to get us into a lot of trouble. But we don't sometimes get subtle enough and, and realize that this getting off on the pleasure of gratification throws us out of balance. You know, gratification of desire frees us from the pain of wanting. You, know, you want to see your friend, there's a certain sort of tension there, and you see your friend, and, oh, you're free from the tension, and that freedom from tension is experienced as pleasure on a certain level. You know, you're hungry, and, and you know, it's discomfort, and so you're wanting food, and that wanting is discomfort, and it builds up and builds up, and then you eat, and you're free from wanting, and that... Freedom from wanting, that gratification of desire experiences pleasure. And if we're not smart, if nobody teaches us, we then attach to that pleasure. And so that's what we do. We spend our whole life just running after another pleasurable experience, you know, more agreeable situations. And, and so greed becomes normal. And so now we have a whole world that's running on it. We have a whole culture, we have a whole economy, a whole philosophy that's running on this energy, this addiction to gratification of desire. And those of us who have some sense that uh, you know, there's got to be more to life than this, we start getting spiritual about things, and, but we've got to be very subtle and very careful that we don't just bring the same motivation into our spiritual practice and getting greedy for insights and greedy for experiences and greedy for understanding. We, we can think that 
that's virtuous to be greedy for understanding. Busy running out, going on the internet and trying to find out more information about Dhamma. How much information do you need? Ajahn Chah used to sometimes talk about this. He says, you know, you guys know so much, you don't know anything. You know about, you know about, you know, you can read all about the analysis and read the Abhidhamma and the scriptures and get all these sophisticated interpretations of the reality, the nature of experience. And But, you know, the word hot is totally different from burning your finger. The word hot is one reality, hot. It's a noise, it's a sound, it's a concept. But when you burn your finger on the candle, that is a completely different reality. And so likewise, you know, Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path, Patija Samapada, all of these things that we know about Dhamma, yeah, they're important. Like the concept of hot, it's it's important. We use that concept. Various other concepts, and we get very careful in in our use of concepts, but they're just concepts. They're an approximation of reality, and so, so Rajan Chah would warn us of it. You know, yeah, just because you got this ability to accumulate information about reality, you know, it's just like because you've got the ability to eat it doesn't mean to say you should eat all day long. <laughs> yeah, it's um, that's called greedy. Now, considering this and uh, factoring it in, not getting overly judgmental about it, you know, but getting interested in it, and it's got its place. You know, there's, um, Young people, the, the, well, who was it, Oscar Wilde or George Bernard Shaw or one of those fellows who, who said that youth is wasted on young people? And, yeah, you know, the energy and vitality and innovativeness of, of youth is great. But young people don't have the perspective necessary to process because they're caught up in, in greed often and don't have a, a sense of the place of stopping. Being still, considering alternatives. One of my, um, one of the, it was actually a, a useful experience. My <clears throat> naive, youthful, going around looking for other teachers and listening to teachings. <clears throat> when I was a young monk, I did come across a, uh, a monk that I in the north of Thailand. Who I remember a conversation I had with him, and he just dropped this little bit of understanding into my consciousness which was really helpful and and he pointed out the one aspect of wisdom he said the one aspect of wisdom is that you see both sides if there's wisdom you don't just see what your preferences have conditioned you to see when there's no wisdom the deluded preferences the mind that's defined by deluded preferences is all we see what we like or what we dislike and we get caught up in this, comparing what we like and what we dislike. But we don't see liking and disliking. Yeah. You, you see, for instance, that, um, I, again, quoting Ajahn Chah, he's talking about building monasteries. You know, he says, oh, you monks, he's criticizing some of these monks who want to have more land and bigger monasteries and say, you know, it's not difficult to build a monastery, then you've just got to spend the rest of your life looking after it. You know, you're busy thinking about building a big house, but you're not thinking about how much work's going to be involved in cleaning it. Yeah. Also, you would talk about monks getting disciples. It's, oh, it's not difficult to get some disciples. and But then you've got to spend years and years looking after them and training them. So 
the mind that's caught up in preferences, that's not wise, that doesn't see the bigger picture, only sees what we want in a situation. And then our perception is partial and we're deluded as a result. Our judgment is flawed as a result. Now, that's not to say that the discriminating mind is wrong. Not at all. Our discriminative faculties are are fabulous, wonderful. It's one of the things that makes us human. Our intelligence is this ability to remember from the past and to extrapolate and to compare experiences. And and so discriminative intelligence in itself is is fine. It's just so. If it wasn't for that, we wouldn't wouldn't have evolved into the uh, race we are now. I mean... you just, I was thinking earlier today, actually, about, um, about hygiene. You know, people, people go on about all these terrible diseases. Oh, he's got cancer. What a disaster. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. You never lived long enough to get cancer. <laughs> if you lived past 30 or 40, you know, that was quite something. You know, what happened? People got to think about experience, that look at situations, that compare. And then, and then what evolved was hygiene. And then there's understanding of bacteria. And then you get a whole world change as a result. There's an increased sense of well-being because of using our discriminative intelligence. Or in farming, crop rotation. When human beings discovered crop rotation, what what an improvement that was. you plant this crop this year and it looks it's great and the yield is good and then next year the yield's not so great. The next year the yield's really no good at all. Well, if you don't exercise your discriminative intelligence, you just keep planting the same crop and you're getting poorer and poorer yield every year. But if you step back and you start looking at it and you start thinking about what's going on and comparing experiences with other farmers and other situations and, and what happens when you find some legumes growing in that field that, you know, the little bacteria put some nitrogen back into the soil and the next year you get a good crop again. You say, oh, right, that's what we need to do. You do a little crop rotation. And where did that come from? It didn't come from sitting there with an empty mind being peaceful. <laughs> And from using the mind. You know, discriminative intelligence is really important. You know, cooperative community. Say, oh, I don't like living with people. People are really boring. They, they smell, they're noisy. <laughs> Other people can be really irritating. I'm going to go and live on my own. Well, living on your own has got its benefits, but it's really hard work living on your own. I mean, people who try it find how difficult it is. And when you look around, you say, well, actually, the happy people... The ones that seem to last longer, the ones that the, the, that the tigers don't eat and, and so on, are the ones that cooperate. They take turns in looking out for the wild animals. And so, yeah, using discriminative intelligence has definitely got its place. So we're not putting, we're not putting that aspect of our minds down. But what happens? what happens if we don't have wisdom? What happens is that we get off on this amazing faculty we have to pick and choose and, and compare and discriminate and judge. We get off on it and we get addicted to it. And we can't let go of it. And it's painful. It's always, we're always, we can't stop it. There's reasons for that happening and I would suggest probably the main reason for it happening is, is just this imbalanced education that we've had. You know, scientific education's definitely got its place. We're grateful for it. We're fortunate. 
But how much did they teach us at school about letting go of discriminating, letting go of judging, letting go of picking and choosing? Maybe an occasional inspired English teacher might have referred to some poet expanding into some state of awareness and consulting their muse and and whatever, you know, there may be a little reference to, to something other than the discriminating intelligence, but not very much of it, at least not in my experience. You know, uh, the scientific intelligence, the scientific education is what really is valued. And so, yes, we've gone a long way, but we've gone a long way out of balance. And um, uh, also, uh, yeah, religious teachings... Throw us out of balance. Wrong views mean that we 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 don't we don't know how to how to cultivate a heart of loving kindness and accept conditions as they are in the moment. We're compulsively judging. If you've got a God that is picking and choosing, accepting some and taking them up and throwing the rest into hell, that's not that's you know that doesn't lead to a a mind that's accepting and inquiring into the nature of things. It leads to a mind that's compulsively picking and choosing. Mm-hmm. Also, sometimes it's um, you know just the result of, of laziness. You know, we just you know, follow these habits that we have of mind and don't stop and question whether this busy mind that we've got is really taking us to contentment or not. So this brilliant... The brilliant discriminating mind has got its place, but if we're not wise, if we don't have wisdom teachings, then we get off on the pleasure of it and we get lost in it. So we're not putting it down, but we need to find a way of engaging it and using it so it's not using us. So we're not driven. We're not driven by it. I tend to uh, think of, and often you may have heard me refer to, this uh, compulsive judging mind as as CJD. It's a, it's a terrible <laughs> it's a it's a terrible disease. Compulsive judging disorder. It's uh, it's all over the place, and I suspect probably most people in this room have got it. And it's, uh, it's really bad news. Uh, compulsive judging disorder, and and it expresses itself. The symptoms of if you've got a serious case of compulsive judging disorder, then then the symptoms you have are, you know, you sit in meditation and instead of appreciating the privilege to be still and not running around doing things all the time and, and, or running away from enemies or, or afraid of being caught by some religious policeman who's going to torture you in prison. Instead of appreciating this wonderful opportunity, you're busy saying, why am I doing as well as I should be doing? Could I be doing better? And am I in the right tradition? Have I got the best teacher? You know, or if you're a household, have I got the best husband or the best wife? You know, I mean, it, it's compulsive, isn't it? It's compulsive. It's there. <laughs> compulsive judging disorder. Where does it come from? It's not the capacity for judging that's the problem. It's we don't have a wise perspective on it. We don't see it for what it is. We don't appreciate the reality of discriminative intelligence for what it is. It's got its place. Salt has got its place. Can you imagine cooking without salt, eating without salt? 
But you don't want to put salt in everything. I mean, you don't put salt in your coffee. I mean, you know, I mean, some people put salt in their porridge, which if you're Scottish, I suppose it's okay. But personally, I like to put brown sugar on my porridge. You, know, you don't want to put salt in everything. We don't want to apply the compulsive discriminating mind to everything, but we do. Yeah. It's a disorder. And so it's greed. It's a manifestation of greed. And we think it's spiritual. You know, we're sitting there comparing, am I doing as good as that person? And, you know, that person's doing better than me. And I've been meditating all these years now. For goodness sake, I should be doing better than this. And, and I'm still breaking my precepts. And still complaining, still getting angry. And there's this compulsive judging disorder, criticizing. Now, it's not always necessarily gross like that. And this compulsive judging disorder, it goes very, very subtle. And you can get very, very peaceful. Very peaceful, and still it can be working. And that's why it's so important to talk about this. So we, we got a, we've got a good enough handle on this before we get too far in our spiritual life. And I would suggest that um, a lot of our Asian brothers and sisters, they don't realize how diseased we are. You know, they, they, of course, you know, most of them have got the same disorder, but they're not as severe as ours. We've got a really bad case of it because of the... Education we've got because of the distorted religious beliefs we've got in our culture. You know, it really creates a serious split in our mind. We can't simply be aware and appreciate what is. Yeah. Yeah. I was just writing this afternoon the, the uh, New Moon Dhammasakacha verse for next Tuesday. And I came across the verse in there. Dhammapada, verse 22, where the Buddha is talking about how the wise are dwelling in delight at the capacity of awareness itself. That's what the wise beings do. They're just getting off on the capacity of awareness. They're not mixed up on the content of awareness like we are, picking and choosing all the time. We can't even appreciate the content of awareness, let alone awareness itself. But the Buddha is pointing out that wise beings... They're just dwelling in delight in the capacity of being aware. And that takes wisdom. Uh, For us, we haven't been educated with this, and so what do we do? We're busy clinging to conditions. We think, oh, this is a wholesome condition, so we're going to follow it. I've got to develop more samadhi. Uh, I've got to become more happy. I've got to become more focused. Or I've got to become more popular or... We've got to become more something. We've got to become something. Where you know, in Buddhism, it's very straight. Becoming is suffering. I mean, we must have bypassed that stage of the training. Huh? <laughs> the Buddha, very, very basic. Becoming or becoming a suffering. Clinging leads to suffering. You know, it's very basic. But sometimes we're so caught up in our greed that we don't even see it, and we've lost this wonderful capacity for appreciation to just appreciate, to appreciate the content of awareness, but to appreciate awareness itself. So appreciating the content of awareness, to appreciate the situation that we have. As I said, the opportunity to practice meditation, to appreciate that we've received these teachings. I mean, how rare is that in the world? How many people in the world have come across Dhamma teachings of this caliber that you can really apply 
And how many lifetimes, now maybe you don't believe in this, I do, but how many lifetimes have we lived, you know, where we've just gotten caught up in stuff? You know, having wars and getting greedy and getting angry and getting confused. And, <coughs> so this is a very rare and privileged position. But we don't always appreciate it. Why? This restlessness, this endless restlessness of I want more, I've got to become more, I've got to do something more, I've got to get rid of something more. So the compulsive judging disorder, if we've had the good fortune to come across a teacher or a teaching who has exemplified this for us, this is, this is wonderful. And this is why um, hopefully all of you have copies of the collected teachings of Ajahn Shah and, and read them from time to time. Or the other great teachers, the other great disciples of the Buddha that exemplified the consciousness that is freed from picking and choosing. Now, living with Ajahn Chah, the, the culture of the monastery, Ajahn Chah's monasteries, it was actually, my memory of living there, was it was considered shameless to indulge in gossip about other teachers in other monasteries. You just didn't hear it. I mean, I, if you heard it, it was kind of like, it was kind of embarrassing. Somebody who doesn't know how to practice, and then somebody hasn't started practicing yet, you're going, oh, that teacher, oh, he's an arahant, or that one, oh, he's a sucker to go with that one, he's an anagami, and oh, they've developed first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, no. oh, he's samadhi, that's the way to go, or no, 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 it's got to be vipassana. This kind of talk, you, you would never hear it. Well, very rarely would you hear it. Because Ajahn Shah was so emphatic that the beginning of the Eightfold Path, right view, is the cultivation of right view is the ability to let go of all views and opinions. So long as we're caught up in picking and choosing, setting up like against dislike, we're not, there's not much chance that right view is going to manifest. For Ajahn Chah, right view was his, 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 his nourishment. He talked about the difficulties of being the abbot of a monastery and all these disciples and all these lay people and all the problems and the issues that you get. and In his own case, the ill health he suffered for many, many years. But how did he cope with it? No picking and choosing. He didn't say, oh, I've got a headache. I can't go and give a dumb talk today. I've got a headache. You know, he was feeling sick and miserable. Somebody came to see him. He'd come down and he'd see them. He'd talk with them. He'd meet them. Say, oh, that disciple, he's hopeless. Throw him out of the monastery. No, no. So long as somebody was willing to give themselves the training, he would receive them. So he set this beautiful example of not picking and choosing, not getting lost in preferences. He had preferences, for sure. I'm sure if you gave him, if you gave him our porridge for breakfast, he probably would feel, hmm, well, that's different. You know? Whereas if you gave him some boiled rice with pickled fish and chilies in it, he'd say, well, that's agreeable. <laughs> yeah, there would be agreeable and disagreeable. Ajahn Shah... Yeah, the Buddha had they experienced agreeable and disagreeable, but the difference between them and us is they didn't get lost in it, and we get lost in it. And, but this is something we are doing. This is not an obligation. This picking and choosing, this lack of wisdom, means we don't see both sides. We just go for what we like, and that's uh, another word for that is uh, greed. And that needs to be recognised, not judged, because that's just another expression of picking and choosing. Compulsive judging is, so, oh, I shouldn't be so greedy, and I'm a hopeless meditator, I've got to stop picking and choosing. No, that's picking and choosing. You've got to get more subtle than that. You've got to fall back into awareness and just watch this whole drama, this whole picking and choosing thing going on.
Ajahn Chah, when there was a, one presentation of the teaching, which I appreciated, as many, but one in particular, where he was asked to define Buddhism. <clears throat> and he said, Buddhism is simplify your life and watch your mind. I can handle that. Yeah. Simplify your life and watch your mind. Both things. Not just simplify your life. Not just be a renunciate and give up eating in the evening and give up listening to Bach and, and the Grateful Dead and whoever else, you know. That's simplify your life maybe, but if you're not cultivating awareness as well, then simplifying your life on your own is not the point. It's not the point. You can be getting off on being very simple, being a great renunciate and living very simply, don't have any money and blah, blah, blah. But the point of that is where that meets awareness. If our life is too complicated, then... We're just distracted the whole time. We're just busy dealing with all the distractions. Just surviving, trying not to go too far out of balance. Trying to not, try not to get too exhausted. Yeah. We've only got so much energy, and so the wise thing to do is just remove some of the compulsive distractions of your life and get a little simple. Yeah. Keep the precepts. Yeah. Don't overindulge in sensuality. Yeah. And then see how that enhances awareness so we can watch our mind. And watching the mind, one aspect of watching the mind is to identify those compulsive tendencies that keep tripping us up. All these years of practicing, what is it I'm doing? I'm not happy, what's wrong with me? I mean, mean, how many precepts do you have to keep? I mean, I got 227, I do pretty well with those. Still miserable? What's what's the problem? Well, one of the big things is one of the big things is this this greed. I always want more. Yeah. This picking and choosing, compulsive judging disorder. You know, always judging ourselves, judging each other, judging life, and getting off on it. We think we're as good as we can judge. We think we're as good as we can discriminate. Scientific education—that's what they program us with. Yeah. Well, as I said, we're not putting down the scientific education. It's just that it's not balanced. It needs to, we need to rebalance it with accurate spiritual education, which is the teaching of right view. All views and opinions, even the so-called right ones that the Buddha gave us, if we cling to them, we can make them wrong. Even the Buddha's teachings are wrong if we cling to them. So, yes, we hold them, but we hold them with carefulness, with gentleness. We take them in and we consider them. And so we hold this teaching, Ajahn Chah's teaching, simplify your life and watch the mind. And if we're holding it rightly, carefully, consistently, patiently, which is terribly important, then we start to pick up these patterns and we see this you know, always going on about how things should be. I should be this way, he should be that way, the teacher should be like this, the world should be like that, the politician should be like that, the queen should be like that, my mother should have been like that, my father definitely should have been like that, or shouldn't have been like that. All this carrying on judging all the time, we catch it. We catch it, and then you catch it, and then what do you do? (laughs) Then we judge it. (laughs) We say, oh, it shouldn't be this way, I shouldn't be judging. No, that's not subtle enough. This is often the case. People will ask me, say, oh, like some young man approached me in town yesterday and um, he said, oh, I need to come and see you. I mean, my mind is just won't stop. 
And I know this. I know the guy. He's a, he's a very kind, very generous, very virtuous, moral person. I'm sure he keeps the precepts. And, and he's got a very virtuous wife, a very nice couple. And he said, my mind won't stop. And there was just this great big judgment of his busy mind going on. And, well, the situation we saw ourselves in, the situation we were in, wasn't a, a situation to start talking about the subtleties of the compulsive judging disorder that he's suffering from. But he is going to come and see me, and this is what we're going to talk about. And, of course, it'll come up. I'm guaranteed that it'll come up. You highlight this condition and say, oh, yeah, that's what's going on. There's this mind judging. And say, I've got to stop doing that. And <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. You're not going to stop the compulsive judging. You look at it. So the concept is good. The name is good. The interest in it is good. And then we patiently endure until one day we catch it. We say, oh, there it is. And we don't judge it. No judging the judging mind. The judging mind is just so. It's like, it's like the clouds. You know, the clouds are like that. Ajahn... Punya. You wonder about clouds going out in Punya. You know, all these different clouds and there's low ones, high ones, dense ones, dense ones, black ones, white ones, and the fluffy ones and vague ones and hazy ones. And the clouds are just like that. There's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with them. They're just so. The judging mind is just like that. That's what it does. You can't say, oh, we shouldn't have clouds. You know, you know we're always going to have clouds. There's always going to be clouds. There's always going to be the judging mind. You know, so long as we're alive, it's part of our intelligence. But when it's out here and we can see it, we say, ah, right, no problem. When you know the clouds pass, the sun will come again. Don't make a problem out of it. The judging mind is just so. Don't make a problem out of it. And when you've seen that, that's a great relief. But maybe before we see that, we need to exercise a little patience and that Actually, is what I'm supposed to be talking about tonight because that's the verse on the calendar for this month. And I, I talk about the verse on the calendar, the first Saturday of the month, and the quote that is there um, the month of August. You'll see a nice picture of this um, monk is busy building a stupa in the monastery in Auckland there and patiently, we hope, attending to what he's doing up there. And there's a quote there from Ajahn Chah underneath which says, of all the... All the, uh, of all the virtues that we develop in our life, patient endurance is the most important. Mm. Of all the principles, all the disciplines that we develop in our life, patient endurance is the most important. This is not just Ajahn Chah saying this, it was the Buddha said the same thing. Patient endurance, he called it the ultimate purifier. Tapo titika, this Pali word, tapo titika, the ultimate tapas. Those of you that know your Pali or your Sanskrit, now tapas is, tapo is literally fire, but tapas is what you see these Indian sadhus doing there, you know, standing on their head and standing on one leg and going through these extreme tapas, these extreme austerities. And so you'll often see this, this teaching of the Buddha who talks about patient endurance as the ultimate austerity. So I don't think austerity is the best word for translating tapas. Tapo titika. Basically what the Buddha is talking about is patient endurance is the ultimate spiritual exercise for purifying consciousness. Fire is used to purify gold. You've got gold, you 
put it under the flame and, and the dross comes to the surface, you scoop it up and you've got pure gold. You know, fire is... We regularly use fire as a purifying principle. And, and actually, in, in our practice, all of you will have experienced this, I'm sure. In sitting meditation, sometimes the heat comes up and the passions are there and the endurance it takes, the patience it takes to bear with it. It takes a lot of effort. You know, the impulse to move and shift around and go and do something and talk to somebody and get an answer to your problem and go and solve it. What the Buddha was talking about was patient endurance. Bear with it. Forbearance is another lovely old-fashioned English word you know, I'd ever use. Forbearance. To bear with. Not knowing. You know, often that's the case. Our so-called spiritual motivation, which is actually just a form of greed, means that when we're, we come to the edge of our perception and we don't know anymore what we're supposed to be doing... We don't have the humility and the agility to just wait there and patiently bear with this frustration of not knowing. We're caught up in our cultivated, conditioned greed of I'm only as good as I am becoming better. This, this ridiculous notion of, of endless development, kind of insane economy we've got in our culture these days, perpetual growth, ridiculous concept. But we're very much caught up in that. Uh, however, if we have a decent education, if there's a little wisdom, then we do have this agility. And there's hopefully the humility that when you're faced with not knowing, instead of greedily striving after an answer, you can bear with the heat of wanting to know, wanting to get rid of. You know, you've got a painful memory and you're wanting to get rid of this painful memory and you say, do we have the humility, the patience, the, the wisdom to expand awareness, to accommodate this, all this passion? Or do we just collapse down into a contracted sense of me that's got to do something to fix it, you know, which is what the controlling, compulsive ego is always going to do? You know? That's a disaster, you know, because there's only so much we can maintain and, and fix, you know. And then we come to the end. You can't do it anymore. You risk. You're going to break at that point. And sometimes that's where people's spiritual practice finishes. Say, oh, it doesn't work, or I don't have enough ability, or whatever. I'll go somewhere else, and let's go and have a pizza. Yeah. Well, if we're properly prepared, and when we reach that point where I can't take it anymore, then instead of collapsing down, we expand out into an open, expanded sense of awareness and say, oh, I don't know what to do with this. And the passion, the wanting to know, the fear of not knowing, the fear of failing, we can accommodate that. If we're picking and choosing, we can't accommodate the fear of failure. No room for it. We've got to succeed, which is what we like. We've got to be a winner. Like in a conversation. A good good barometer, if you practice, is, is can you lose? Having a conversation, do you always have to be the winner? You have to win the conversation. You always have to come up with the next better bit of information, the next better story. Or you can just sit there and be the drongo. <laughs> you know, be the one who doesn't know anything. Be the dummy. You know, let everybody think that you're a dodo. You know, or do you have to always win? Uh, that compulsive conditioning of oh, it's always got to be on top, always got to win, always got to achieve, always got to become. You know, what is that? You know, we're not... 
I'm not talking about making a problem out of it, but if we can raise it up and say, well, that's what that is. That's painful. It's not bad, not wrong, but if we're caught up in it, ouch. <laughs> so patient endurance is, uh, as Ajahn Chah said, is uh, the most important thing. It's not, not bitter endurance, not that gritting your teeth and, God, I hate this, but I suppose I can put up with that. Yeah. Like this, this, this next week, there's a retreat coming on and, and Ajahn Abhinanda is going to be leading a group of people, some of you, in this retreat over the next week. And, and you know, maybe he's, you know, he's taking a long time before he rings the bell and, and you can be sitting there, oh, God, uh, how much more of this? Oh, endurance, endurance, it's good for me. Uh, Ajahn Abhinanda said, it's good for me. I'll put up with it. That's not patient endurance. That's not what Ajahn Chah, that's not what the Buddha was talking about. Yeah, yeah. What Ajahn Abhinanda is doing is giving you the best opportunity for practice. Yeah. And you can sit there and say, can I bear with this thoroughly disagreeable circumstance without picking and choosing? Yeah. We don't have to say, I'm going to do it. That's just more picking and choosing. So you say, quietly, can I do this? But this is, and we can see this. This compulsive picking and choosing is not an obligation. It's a conditioned tendency. And it's something worth recognizing. And if we can do it, well, then we don't have to succeed all the time. We can learn from failure too. We can get it all wrong and learn from that. Hopefully, if we've got the precepts, we're not going to get it too wrong, which is very important to remember. If we've got the precepts and we've got this understanding, then we can learn from everything. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Andamayang damawagatata sarukarang damasim.